This is Teeming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work work together. I'm Carlos Valdez Depena, your host, and I spent decades working with teams as well as researching, writing, and speaking about collaboration. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people, academics, business leaders, managers, consultants, who share my passion for collaboration. In Teeming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts who will share their thoughts, experiences, theories, and practices so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. Okay, Devin Bailey, welcome to Teeming with Ideas. How are you today? I am wonderful, Carlos. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to do this. Why don't we begin, as we so often do, with you telling us a bit about yourself? Great. I would love to. So you know how creating everything you want in life, achieving your maximum potential, and actually living the life of your dreams is kind of complicated and difficult to do? Uh, Well, I basically teach the knowledge and the practices needed to thrive so that people can actually go out there and create the life they really want. I spent about 13 challenging and amazing years in the corporate world for which I'm grateful for every minute and it actually led to some pretty deep and challenging emotional difficulties and it was off the back of all of that that I had my kind of divine storm if you like which is what pushed me into the personal development space and I now work with groups of people individuals um, and I would say what I'm most passionate about is this concept of what I call emotional freedom, which is the ability for us to manage our emotional state so that we can be at our best, whether it comes to how we team with our colleagues and collaborate best in the workplace, how we show up as the best possible husband, wife, boyfriend or girlfriend for our partner, or how we can be a kind, loving, caring and compassionate human. For me, it's all about managing that emotional state so that we can be at our best. Okay. And I believe you have a book out there somewhere, correct? I've read it. Yes, yes, I do. It is um, confrontationally named How to Escape from Prison, meaning emotional prison that we that so many of us find ourselves trapped in because we are plagued by a set of values and rules that have been put into our heads by society and those around us growing up. There is a, a simple set, if not somewhat easy set of tools to help us escape from that emotional prison. Oh, escape from emotional prison. Tell me a bit about emotional freedom, if you don't mind. I've referred earlier to this, this emotional challenge. Um, I'll come right out and share it with you, Carlos. It was, um, it was a pretty brutal experience. It was, it was what I define now as a nervous breakdown. And by the way, I, I don't love that term because that means so many different things to different people. So I'll just spell it out. It was um, a complete meltdown. I describe it as an extreme physiological response to prolonged psychological pain. And it basically destroyed everything I held dear in my life in terms of my pride, my reputation, how people around me saw me in the workplace and gave me what I see now as a wonderful opportunity to start again. And I realized rather conveniently, that actually how I was feeling had nothing to do with the facts and circumstances of my life. And that was the secret. I didn't didn't realize how profound that was six, seven years ago when this weird and wonderful journey started. But, But truly how we feel in any given moment actually has nothing to do with what's going on around us. It has everything to do with our thoughts about what's going on around us. 
And that for me is at the heart of what I now lovingly refer to as emotional freedom. It's the ability to cultivate the emotional state you want, irrespective of what's actually happening. Because I think, tell me if you disagree, if your emotional state is dependent upon what's happening in your life, you probably pick the wrong planet to come and live on because I don't know about you, but my life's not getting any easier. So if I want everyone and everything to be just a certain way for me to feel good, that's not a sustainable strategy. Got it. So I tend to be an emotionally expressive person. I think there was an old saying, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Um, yeah. If I'm feeling it, you pretty much know it because it shows. Now, my emotions are mine and not the result of what I'm experiencing around me. It feels to me like emotions have an important role to play in our lives. And by disconnecting our emotions from the world we're experiencing, it feels like we're relegating emotions to some other place. And I'm not sure what that place is. Can you say more about where the right place for emotions is? I, I love that. And that's a, that's a wonderful question. So what I'm suggesting is not that we relegate them, not that we ignore them, not in fact, if anything, actually, I feel more deeply now than ever before. Maybe that's partly because of this path of let's, let's call it enlightenment that we're on, or whether it's my meditation practice or whatever, I feel emotions more deeply, the good, the bad and everything in between. I think our emotions are the most amazing guidance system. Because if you feel shitty, it means you're thinking something shitty. So I think the place for them is, is twofold. One is a guidance system so that you know that it's time for you to clean up your thinking. If you're feeling a negative emotion, and it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's embarrassment, resentment, anger, frustration, irritation, they all feel bad, don't they? Really, there's only two emotions. One feels good, one feels bad. There's just lots of names for them right? If you're feeling bad, it means you know that you're focused on something negative, fearful, lackful, contracted. So it's time for you to reassess and ask different questions. That, that's number one, knowing that you alone have the power to determine what something means. And the second one is, it's a reminder for you to intervene consciously. Because so many of the emotions we experience are just patterns. We're triggered by something. Right? I'll give you a silly example, Cobbs. Someone cuts you off in traffic, right? It happens a lot in New Jersey, right? In fact, I would go as far as saying in New Jersey, they should probably make cars without turn signals because no one uses them, right? So you get cut off in traffic and your response is anger, frustration. Well, you don't know what that person's going through. You don't know that they meant to do it. I'm pretty sure they didn't wake up that morning with the sole intention of seeking you out on whatever highway to irritate you. Are you sure? Are you sure about that? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes it feels like they did. But my point is, a lot of it's unconscious, is it not? You're triggered and tripped by certain events that just fire off a pattern. Uh, what I call a programmed response in your brain. So that negative sensation you're feeling is an alarm bell to say, hey, Carlos, it's time for you to intervene and consciously decide something different so that you can feel better. Okay. So, so far, we have spoken about the negativity. We've been focused on the bad. When I hold one of my grandchildren in my arms, and she smiles up at me or she cuddles into my shoulder, I feel good. Should I be doing something with that? Or can I just languish? Can I just dwell in that moment of bliss? I'm, I'm starting to feel like my emotions are this tool I have to use all the time. Now, what a beautiful question. So languish in it, enjoy it, soak it up, absorb it, 
and I would say arguably don't do anything different. Maybe, maybe take a note in that moment of three things. What it is that you're paying attention to, what you're focusing on, the kinds of words that you're saying to yourself in your head and what you're doing with your physical body, because those are the three elements that trigger an emotional pattern. Because you can actually replicate that strategy again in the future. If you want to feel that sense of love or longing or connection, you could replicate those three things, even in the absence of, of your granddaughter, and feel the same way. So if you wanted to do anything, it would be, yeah, enjoy it and, and maybe make a note of the strategy to feel it again. So, yeah, this is great. Go, what were the three things again? Just So they're what I call the meaning makers, because our brains are just meaning making machines, right? Every, it's part of our survival software. You, you know this more than most, right? Anytime anything happens, our brain has to know what it means. And there's three levers we can pull to shape that meaning, shape it to be something empowering versus something disempowering and, and every variation in between. And the three things, as I describe them, are attention. What, what do you pay attention to in that moment? Expression, how are you actually articulating, mostly in our heads, sometimes out loud, the words we're using to describe the experience, and then position, what are you actually doing with your body? F- for example, if you, if you were feeling a sense of, of, of contraction or scarcity, or, or dare I say depression, the chances are you're probably not jumping up and down, right? You're sat in a chair, your eyes are drawn, you're looking down, you're hunched over. So the, the, the position our physical body takes mm-hmm. powerfully informs our psychology so it's attention expression and position are the three what i call meaning makers i will admit to being a little disingenuous in my line of questioning in my first book i write about the fact that our feelings are our own i do it in the context of conflict so this guy Devin, he's just such an irritating so and so and i attempt to put my feelings onto you, make them your problem. The way I feel is because of you. And I come right out and say, the only one who controls or owns our feelings is ourselves. And it's up to us, therefore, to do something with them. I'm completely on board with that idea that my feelings are mine. In fact, in my trade, organization development, we talk about use of self. Yes. What that means is as a consultant watching a group go through a process, I was trained to pay attention to what I was feeling as I watched this group, as I listened and paid attention, and to note what those sensations were, and then to ask myself, so what do those mean? What might those be suggesting about what's happening in this group? I thought it was such an interesting topic. I would play a bit of the devil's advocate there. So thank you for bearing with me. I appreciate that. And and Carlos, your point about why, you know, we naturally gravitated towards what we can do to overcome or change negative emotions as opposed to talking about how to promote the positive. I love you bringing that up. And and I would say, unfortunately, the reason why I tend and most people in this industry tend to focus on helping people overcome negative emotions or deal with them is because for most people, that is their emotional home, is it not? They'll deal with stress, response, negativity. I, I think for the most part, people have a harder time dealing with their negative emotions than they do enjoying their good ones. And the reason is because none of us need a reason to feel bad, but we do need a reason to feel good. It's a silly example. You go into work one day and you see Joe blogs and he's grumpy and he's kind of moping around and you say, Oh no, Joe, what happened? Did you get some bad news? And he's like, no, I just hate Wednesdays. You would say, oh, yeah, I hate you, man, but it's hump day. Don't worry, it'll be Friday soon. It's completely fine 
that he feels that way for no apparent reason. Now imagine you come in and you bump into Joe Boggs and he's just humming a tune to himself. He's smiling. He's like doing a little dance at the photocopier. And you say, Joe, Joe what happened, dude? Did you, did you get some good news? And he's like, no, nope, I just feel great today. You would think he was crazy, wouldn't you, Carlos? You'd think he's crazy because it seems to be that no one needs a reason to feel bad, but they do need a reason to feel good. I love that you called me out on it. That's why I naturally tend to the negative emotions rather than starting at watering the roses. Right. As my wife will tell you, I tend to be focused on the what's wrong in the world. I'm always looking for what needs fixing. Yeah. It's been a life's journey learning how to value and appreciate what's working already and what doesn't need intervention. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the power of appreciation to reinforce what's good and I completely understand the tendency to default to the what's wrong or, or the negative. I think that's a gift for all of us though, buddy, because it means that you are solving important problems and you're helping communities and, and mankind at large because you are turning your ship into the storm. I would say for the everyday person who's struggling, the reason perhaps is because most of us haven't trained our minds and our brains are programmed over tens of thousands of years to focus on what's wrong. It's part of our ancient survival software. And if left unattended, of course, the mind is going to find what's going to kill you. It's always looking for the saber-toothed tiger. Right, right. Um, I think your situation is a little different in as much as you're doing it from a place of conscious awareness, mm. doing it from a place of abundance rather than scarcity to try and zoom in and solve a problem if that makes sense. But your state, may I say, when you're doing it is, is one, is an elevated state. You're just trying to help others as opposed to being at the mercy of what's going on around you. Well, that is very kind of you to say, Devin. Thank you. This has come up a few times in other conversations I've had with guests, this idea that worry conveys an evolutionary advantage. And at the same time, Emotional freedom, I think, depends on us identifying when that worrying comes up, because there are times, I think, when a few moments of concern are completely justifiable, and other times when we are spiraling and producing no good outcome and certainly no good feelings. Yeah. I asked you to be on because I know you work with, with leaders yes. in the business world. And one of the observations I've had in my 35 plus years of working with leaders is that leaders tend not to show very much emotion. One of the challenges I've always faced is I'm this outgoing, emotionally expressive person, and my clients tend to be more contained. Mm -hmm. In the worst cases, we are speaking different languages almost. And when I'm trying to build my business and win over a new client, I think my emotional expressiveness can be off-putting to those who are studied in their control of their emotions. Yes. You work with leaders, people who lead teams. Yes. Are you seeing a similar thing at all? A hundred percent. I could not have described it better. And the challenge I would put to these individuals is, how's that working out for you? Keeping it all in, keeping it all bottled up, putting on a brave face when actually you want to express yourself in a different way. For many of my clients is resulting in a lot of anxiety and stress disorders. And it's certainly resulting in a lot of difficult conversations dysfunctional relationships at work and outside of work. So yes, I experienced it in, in a very, very similar way to you. And I would 
even go as far as saying that a lot of what we're talking about today and the tone in which we're discussing this subject matter, a lot of traditional leaders in the business world see this as hippy-dippy, woo-woo BS. Mm. And I don't know if, at least in the next short while, we're ever going to overcome that because it's new. This stuff isn't taught in schools. You're, you're not taught as a kid to honour your feelings and to communicate with impact and empathy. You're told to hide your weaknesses, pretend that there's nothing wrong, to fix your weaknesses, to never be seen to be wrong, to not make mistakes. You're not taught to be an authentic human. You're taught mm -hmm. to be inhuman. At least I was. I'm remembering a boss I had when I worked at IBM. She would have what I would call emotional storms. And I was intimidated. I was not impressed with her vulnerability. I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> she controlled my fate. And there she was just going off. How can leaders gauge their emotion, temper them in ways so that they're not over the top in some way that would hurt their people or intimidate or frighten their people, and yet still be genuine and authentic? What a great question. And I think maybe we should clarify what the two of us mean by emotion or being emotional. Because what I'm not advocating, and I don't, want to, I don't want to speak for you, brother, but I don't think you're advocating either, is for people to fly off the handle and be emotional in a meeting. That, what I mean is being authentic. So from my perspective, two words are really important, calm and measured. For me, that is the barometer. Even if there's a storm brewing inside, I am going to find a way in the moment to communicate that in a calm and measured fashion. So for me, it's not necessarily about, you know, unleashing and allowing yourself to be hysterical in a meeting room because that's how you feel. I'm saying take control, be in command, be calm and measured and communicate with impact and empathy. That's what I mean by allowing your emotions out is to actually say, guys, I'm afraid too. I'm not entirely sure what the outcome is. I feel what you're feeling. This is what I propose we do. All those in favor say aye. That's a way of being softly vulnerable and about being authentic, as opposed to how many leaders, at least in my experience, they'll show up with frustration, irritation, anger, and forcefulness because they're actually trying to combat how they feel on the inside. So I don't think it's about being emotional. It's about having practices in place that enable you to be calm and measured in the moments that matter so that you can communicate in that way. You used a word I love, practices. Mm -hmm. Practices are great because they're tangible, they're concrete. Yeah. They're things we can describe to people and say, here, here's a practice, do that. What are those practices? How would you suggest folks think about them? So number one, top of my list, and clearly we're not going to teach people how to do this in, in a short space of time together, but is meditation. And this is not me sat here advocating any particular time. Just go find yourself a teacher someone that you resonate with, a style that works for you, that you don't have to sit in a, a cave of nothingness like a Tibetan monk to meditate, right? There are modern practices that work. I will say, honestly, to this day, still the most transformative thing I brought into my life. I meditate twice a day for 15 minutes each, non-negotiable, and it makes you what I call an emotional ninja. It, and there's lots of other things too, but that for me is number one at the top of the list. I, I, I could think of countless times where there's been a storm going on and I felt myself 
dissociate from the experience. Like I sat back in this seat of consciousness, seeing everything play out in front of me. And I just came up with these wonderful solutions and suggestions. You've, you're in the midst of an argument with someone and you're, you're really frustrated with each other and you can't get your words out. And then 20 minutes later, you've calmed down and you come up with some witty comment that would have been hilarious in the moment. Meditation for me enables me not necessarily be the witty person, but be the calm and measured person actually in the storm as opposed to 20 minutes later. Mm-hmm. So that's that's number one for me is is some kind of meditation practice. Okay. The second one is start your day with space. And what I mean is how many people you work with, especially in the business world, start their day with their phone straight in their face. Emails, text, demands, news, pressure, stress, your waking moments are spent consuming shit from the world around you. Is that fair? Absolutely. (laughs) I I highly recommend we don't do that. You just wake up 15, 20 minutes before everyone else in the household and you go take some time to yourself. So for me, I wake up, I take my doggos out for a walk. I have some lemon and water because it helps alkalize the body. I stand outside, I look up at the sky. I do a little gratitude practice. I do my morning meditation and then I read something thoughtful, meaningful, faithful to just tune my brain to say, this is our intention for the day, Devin. It's it's to be this guy. And it seems small, but it's 20 or 25 minutes in my day that without it, I'm starting on the back foot. Mm. I'm, I'm starting like at the bottom of the hill trying to roll the boulder up. I want to, I want to set myself up for success. So that's how I start my day. So it's those two things, meditation and start your day with space. Start your day with space. Those would be the two, because I don't want to, I don't want to list everything I do because your listeners will get bored, but those would be the two, the big daily things I would start with. Any practices for a a mid-level people manager who's struggling with tough times? In addition to, I think, which are two wonderful ones, the, the ones you've named already. Yeah. Can I give you two more? Yeah, please. So I would say, and, and neither of them are easy, by the way, if, if they were, everyone would do them and you and I wouldn't have jobs. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. The, 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 the first one is, it is a habit and I call it challenging your thinking. And it doesn't take long, days, maybe weeks. And it's moment to moment, just being consciously aware of when you feel a sense of stress when you feel a sense of discord or pressure or discomfort of any kind, you know, just trust me, you know you are thinking something shitty. You know you are, that's why you feel that way. So immediately ask the question, huh, is that true? Is that definitely true? Is Joe Bloggs really gonna say that? Is it really gonna take longer than we think? Is there something else happening here? What else could this mean? You know, ask a better question, get a better answer. So it's a moment-to-moment practice thing of, of challenging and questioning your thinking and finding a better question. That's one. That's one. And it sounds as if even a simple meditation practice can help with that. 100%, yes. I would yep. say a meditation practice as part of your life is going to help. I, I describe it as it, it stops you being pushed and pulled around by your mm-hmm. thoughts. It, it puts a, a healthy space between you and your thoughts. I, I always say that thoughts are like clouds in the sky. They're there. They're always going to be there. They pass by and you can choose whether or not to pay attention to them. Right. 
Okay. The, the second one is we touched br briefly on it, the, the power of physiology. Um, and actually, uh, literally before, I, I got to tell you, before this, mm -hmm. I went for a power walk around the block and listened to two pieces of music that get my energy up. Because which version of me do you want, Carlos? The one who's tired, uh, a little bit sore from the gym, who's got some concerns about how to move something forward with the business. Do you want that guy? Or do you want this guy who's right. calm, measured, comfortable, and enjoying himself? Which one do you want? It's clear that second one, although I like a little bit of the first once in a while too, <laughs> makes it more, a little more interesting, but the, you're right. The second one's probably preferable. Lots of people say, you know, you have to exercise every day. And, and of course, I'm going to advocate that for, for health reasons, but I, I'm talking about very short physical practices. Mm -hmm. um, may I tell you a, a quick story to explain this? You may. So I was recalling actually not that long ago, the big conversation I had with my superiors, extremely senior individuals within the largest professional services firm on the planet when I broke the news that I was leaving to go do my own thing, right? This, Carlos, this was the conversation. This was what stood between me and my, and my future, me and my mission, me and not ruining my reputation and ridicule and embarrassment. It was the conversation. And about three minutes before the conversation, I was terrified. And, and, and just, you, you know what it's like, right? Fear just takes over. Thoughts of what's going to happen, they're somehow going to stop me. They're going to be, I'm going to be ridiculed. There's going to be financial consequences. Just all this nonsense that comes up. And I decided, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. That's not the guy I want going into the meeting, right? On the back foot, apologetic, asking for, for permission. I want the guy who's calm and measured and centered. So I found myself a little office. Um, thankfully, it had smoked glass doors and a lock. So I shut the door, I locked it, I put my headphones in, and I jumped up and down like a hooligan to one of my favorite dance tracks for about 90 seconds. Big old smile on my face, eyes shut like I was at some rock concert, and I felt incredible. I took my headphones out, I turned my phone off, I unlocked the door, I opened it, and I walked into the meeting. Would you like to know how that meeting went? Please. Amazingly. They, they were supportive. They were thoughtful. I was kind. I was assertive. I brought certainty to it. They totally understood where I was coming from. They were incredibly kind. They even said the door's always open. You can come back whenever you want. At one point, this partner actually sat down and, and basically said she admired me for what I was doing and kind of wished one day that she had done that. <laughs> Do you think it would have gone that way if the scared wussy version showed up? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. So, so I think my point is this, managing our emotional state is not going to get rid of the problems. It's not gonna cure a health crisis It is in, in, in the moment. It is not gonna mean that, that the global pandemic is a thing of the past. It isn't gonna mean that someone, it isn't gonna get rid of that mean thing that someone said about you. It isn't gonna suddenly get rid of imposter syndrome and all your fears. It, it's not, it's just not. I'm not here, sat here saying life suddenly becomes easy. It is, however, going to make you infinitely more likely to take the actions necessary to overcome those challenges if you are in that state versus the contracted one. So for your, your sweet, thoughtful, eternally optimistic manager, when she's about to walk into one of these tough meetings, if she could just take 30 seconds, 45 seconds to, I hate to put it this way, pump herself up, mm -hmm. 
the better version of her shows up and things go better. Now, you work primarily with leaders. Do you ever work with leaders in their teams in this space? Yes, yeah, a, a lot less often, but it, I, would, I would describe it as like a workshop capacity where the leaders will say, hey, I, I want my team to hear some of this stuff. Can, can, you, can you put on a, a workshop for the, for the wider group? Any last thoughts for those teams out there, members of teams now, probably early to mid-career, how they can think about this idea of emotional freedom in ways that will enhance their work with others and their happiness at work? I would say it starts with you. Um, I'm going to lean on your comment about your emotions are your own. Um, I'm not trying to paint a picture of some utopia where everyone is floating around the office like a bliss bunny. I, honestly, I don't think that future exists. I think these companies yeah. that we work with are big and important and profit oriented and trying to solve problems. It isn't a stress-free, demand-free environment. That's not the future we're trying to create. I believe we're trying to create a future where people in these positions of authority and people in these teams with lots of demands on them are equipped with the knowledge and practices necessary to handle that demand. So what I would say to dovetail that with emotional freedom is be consciously aware of what's happening between your ears. Just know that when you feel bad, it's because you're focused on something bad. It may or may not be true, but have the intellect, have the consciousness to question it and think about it. Because even if it's a two millimeter shift, even if it's a one degree rotation upwards over a period of time, your general state of emotional wellness will be unrecognizable. If one in five terrible thoughts you have, you're able to squash and replace with a good and positive one, a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you will be an unrecognizable person. A lot of people in the past 20 years, a lot of organizations have put money and time into engagement and engagement surveys. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of them says on a one to five scale where one is strongly disagree and five is strongly agree, I have a meditation practice. Mm -hmm. Before I go into a difficult meeting, I take time to jump up and down and listen to uplifting music. Almost all of the questions in these surveys are about what's happening around you. My boss values my opinion. I have a friend at work. I'm getting sufficient development. It's all very external. I wonder if we're really missing the boat here in terms of engagement, because I think what I hear you saying, Devin, is, here we go, you ready? This could be a t-shirt. Engagement starts within. Oh, it does. I love it. <laughs> I could not have described that better. And, and let's think about this. Our strategy, is that how we feel and how we're gonna show up and how we're gonna act is dependent upon being praised by someone, by liking the yep. project I'm doing, by getting a right. pat on the back, by that, I'm sorry, brother, that's not a good strategy. There's some hypocrisy in my voice because obviously I'm human, we both are, and I get triggered and I have down days. I was really struggling a few days ago with a particular issue and it took me a couple of hours to get out of the funk. Normally I give myself 90 seconds. So we're all human. We're all going to get sucked in. But the point is, I know that it starts with me. It has to. I, I can't wait for someone or something to happen. I could be sat here forever, miserable, waiting for it. Right. I, I lead the charge. I have to. 
Otherwise, I'm never going to be able to control my emotional state. I think the whole idea of engagement beginning within has potential to change a lot, including how we train our leaders and managers and how they work with their teams. Yeah. I have struggled, the managers I've worked with who are emotionally contained. Yes. And rightly or wrongly, I've often ascribed it to a lack of an emotional vocabulary. Mm. Most people in companies I work with, when they talk about their feelings, have two or three words for their emotions. They'll never say they're angry or sad. They're frustrated. So weren't you really pissed off? I was a little frustrated. I was, uh, I was delighted. I was delighted to hear they did that. Not I was overjoyed or my gosh, I was thrilled. There is a tool called the Wheel of Emotions, which supplies all these wonderfully subtly different words for different emotional states. Do you think that if we could develop in our leaders and in our team members, some stronger ability to voice our emotions that we might not be a bit better off. One of the meaning makers is how you express it in your head. For example, you talked about people will be asked, were you angry? And they'll say, oh, I was kind of frustrated. They're saying frustrated out loud. Mm -hmm. They're saying angry. They're saying bad things about you in their head, which is shaping the experience they're having Right. and shaping the meaning they attach to you. So I agree, if we had a better vocabulary and there was something in between angry and frustrated and you could genuinely use that word, it might bring you down. Maybe not as far down as frustrated, but down from angry. Right, right. Well, once we move the emotion from the amygdala up into the prefrontal cortex, yes. we strip it of some of its power because we've named it. And just that act of naming it, we know has the power. Do, do you mind if I share another story about the power of language? Yeah. I realized not that long ago that being cut off in traffic was still one of the things that triggered me and that's unacceptable. Like I, if I teach this stuff, I've got to be able to apply it to myself. So I decided to home in on language. So I realized that when I was being cut off in traffic, that sense of anger and frustration I felt within me, that wasn't the only emotion I was feeling, mm -hmm. but it was also because of how I was describing it in my head. So I asked myself, what are the words I'm using? And words like, disrespect, unthinking, danger, all those words came out and they really fueled this sense of anger and frustration and resentment for the other person. And then I thought to myself, we know how powerful language is. It's shaped our world, right? And if there isn't a word for something, you can't feel it or see it. Mm -hmm. You have to name it. Right. And I asked myself, what other words came out when it happened? And I re recalled a specific incident where someone cut me off right at the traffic lights and resulted in me catching a red. And the word sneaky, it was really quiet. It was way down the list after all the other bad words, but the word sneaky was in there. And do you know what happened when I said that word? I smiled. I was like, it's kind of sneaky, isn't it? When someone like nips in front of you, it's kind of sneaky. Yeah, yeah. It might be dangerous, it might be disrespectful, it might be dishonorable, but it's also sneaky. So, because life, the universe, God, whoever, whatever you believe in, is, is never short of opportunities the very next day it happened again and this time it was just right in front of me couldn't be more dangerous almost hit this person and i dialed up the word sneaky in my head and instead of getting angry do you know what happened i laughed out loud that is how easy it is to change an experience i just messed around with the words right it is a testimony to the power of language and once we take control of our thought processes, rather than letting them control us, what's possible? Even if it's something as minor as laughing instead of screaming, 
if we do enough of that, if it becomes a practice for us, mm. life changes. We get happier and the world seems like a better place. Thank you very much. As has happened so many times in these conversations, this went places I could not have anticipated. And thank you very much for playing along. Thank you. And can I just say, I, I, Carla, seriously, I love what you do. I, I appreciate you as a, a friend and a peer in this industry. And uh, I honor you for all the work you're doing and your passion and relentless desire to, to solve problems. So keep up the good work. Thank you, Devin. We'll talk again soon. And to my brilliant listeners, we will uh, see you on our next episode. Take care. Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John Wallerich, for the music. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teaming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com. Questions? Click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teaming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdapena.com forward slash podcast dash contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening and keep on teeming with ideas.